The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favorite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Richard Rudd is a teacher, mystic, and award-winning poet. His inner journey began early in life as he experienced strange energies rushing throughout his body, culminating in a major spiritual experience at the age of 29. Emerging from what he calls a field of limitless light that lasted three days and three nights, Richard was entrusted with a sacred teaching, the wisdom of the Gene Keys. Richard is a born explorer and has studied with great teachers in the East, travelled through the Himalayas, the Pacific, the Americas and the Arctic, earning a master's degree in metaphysics and literature from Edinburgh University. He went on to work in the film industry in Australia, trained as a teacher of Qigong in Thailand, and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean on a small yacht. During this time, he lived in Manhattan, Oregon, and Hawaii before finally returning to the UK in 1998, where he met Mary and his wife. Over the following years, they had three children and moved to Devon in southern England. And throughout his adventures, Richard has explored his love of writing, and in 2006, he won the Fish International Poetry Award in Ireland. All Richard's travels and studies coalesced into a synthesis in 2002 when he began to write and conceive the Gene Keys. It took seven years to write the book and understand its teachings and applications. Today, Richard continues to expand the wisdom that he was gifted, remaining always a student of the Gene Keys while teaching all around the world. To find out more about Richard, please visit thegenekeys.com. That's genekeys.com. G-E-N-E-K-E-Y-S dot com. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the chat today. How are you, brother? 
I'm good. It's a beautiful day here, morning here, down in England. And yeah, I'm up for an interesting chat with you. So thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. And my wife is a huge fan of yours. And so am I. She introduced me to your work. And for anybody that doesn't understand the Gene Keys, we actually had one of your right-handers on called Costa a couple of yeah. months ago. And he was beautiful, a yeah. beautiful man. And he talked us through it. And we could talk about the Gene Keys, which I'm sure we will. But I really wanted to delve deep with you today about this year, this mm. year and the future. Because mm. obviously you have a lot of great insight and contemplation about what has transpired for 2020 and where we're headed. So I mm. nearly feel like just handing it over to you and, and helping you bring some clarity to the yeah. listeners and including myself. <laughs> well, hopefully I can <laughs> do my best. Where do you want me to begin? First thing that pops into your mind. Okay. Well. I think the first thing that really pops into my mind is, you know, the backdrop of these times, you know, the, the real essence is that it's bringing up the fear of humanity. This is what we're really seeing. So it could have been many things, you know, that bring up fear, but this just happens to be the first of possibly many things that will help us to kind of see more of ourselves. And I think, you know, the prime fear that humans have is dying because we don't know what happens when we die, most of us. And so that creates a huge undercurrent of unconscious fear on this planet. So if anything comes up, like the pandemic has arisen, then it triggers this unconscious fear in you know, the vast majority of human beings. And even those of us who are not so affected by the pandemic, because there are many people you know, like, well, I haven't been that affected. I mean, I suppose I have because my children have been more affected because during lockdown stuff, they had to stay at home and that has ripple effects. And I could see the damage that that was causing at some level of them not being able to see their friends and stuff like that. But I think, you know, that's really what we're having to deal with as a species, like our fear of death. And that can be an incredible gift because you'll know this, Pete, that anyone that has the courage to face into that. I mean, obviously, you have to face it if you're old or if you're very ill, then you're facing it by default, right? Mm -hmm. But for the rest of us, it's not something we generally want to give our attention to. And yet, you know, all the great teachings from all time will always say, this is the primary fear we have to face. And it's not just something we have to face in our mind because there's a lot of people go, oh, I'm not really afraid of death, you know. So, but actually when you're actually confronted with it, there's always an unconscious. It's a huge initiation for every human being to go through this portal of death. And because we also live in this backdrop of, we live in a materialistic mindset that's out there, many people are hugely influenced by that. And obviously, at times of great fear, you have all these, you know, basically everyone comes up with an opinion. <laughs> so you have, you know, especially with the internet, we're listening to all these right wingers, left wingers, you know, all these spiritual people, these non-spiritual people, the scientists, and you're hearing all this panoply of just sound and fury and just frustration and complaining and da 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 and it's an intense time, whoever you are, 
because you can't avoid it really you know unless you're isolated on some island and you can't avoid the effect someone you know is affected by it so yeah i think that's what i'd say to beginning it's a, it can be a great gift looking into your fear yeah it's interesting you say that because I've mentioned on these podcasts before with different speakers that I've experienced what I would call my own death through different ceremonial experiences. And it's challenging. And once you can face that in, in these situations and go through it and understand what's potentially on the other side, if there is a side, then mm. it removes a lot of fear, if not most fear. I mean, it doesn't make mm. you want to jump off the top of the building and think you can fly the type removing fear i think it gives you a greater appreciation of this gift of life i mean that's what it has for me and i'm not fearful of death in any way shape or form and i have to agree with you that this is definitely what's happening at the moment this fear so what does that mean on a collective level and an individual level and where is the work to be done for people that are listening to this well i think that's the the primary work begins with the fear you know and I think just leaning towards it, you know, and it can come up in lots of different ways, you know, because it may not be direct for many of the listeners to this, you know, it might be frustration, it might be, you know, the, the knock on effects of other people's fear, you know, and their reactions, the government and stuff with restrictions and, and I'm not saying that those are wrong, by the way, I'm just saying that whatever happens in your life, it's bringing up the perfect thing for you to confront. And in Gene Keys, as you probably know from Costa's wonderful introduction, we call this, I call these shadows, you know, the shadows that lurk in the human deep in our psyche. And this is obviously not a new phenomenon. And Gene Keys is, is all begins with this shadow work. And so whatever it's bringing up for you and those around you, that's the beginning of your initiation. And that's something to listen to and follow. So it's a journey for each of us and a different journey for each of us, but it's also a journey for all of us. And like any journey, you kind of, you're a little bit in control, but you're also not in control because you don't know what you're going to meet around the next corner and you can't control what or who or, you know, what events occur in the journey. And it's a quickening journey. So moving towards it with an open heart, with an open mind is the most critical thing not getting stuck in reactive tendencies you know reaction is a shadow pattern it is the hallmark of all fear patterns is that we react we react quickly you know we react out of fear we react out of anger we react out of some you know we don't measure our response there's a difference between reaction and response so response is something you weigh inside yourself it's something you need to be in a place of calm, really, to respond. You can respond very quickly to something, but it has to come from this place of, from your core. Whereas a reaction is something that comes from your periphery. And reactions always cause further reactions. You know, so fear propagates fear. Anger propagates anger or fear. You know, so the shadow propagates itself. So if we can find a place of deep calm and centeredness inside us, then we can respond clearly to everything that comes along our journey. And that's really the work really now is really each of us, those of us who are awakening, let's say, who are beginning to kind of 
realize there's more, or some of us deeply know that, that there is an intelligence behind everything in the cosmos, then grounding ourselves more and more deeply into the intelligence, and, and particularly in our body, in our physical body, which is where it lives. And for me, the place for that in the body is even in the belly, deep down in the belly in our solar plexus is where the core of our being is. And in there, that's where the wounding also kind of emanates from. So anything that takes us deep into the grounding of our belly and our body is a really powerful practice that we can be involved in. And I think it gives us a a real sense of grounding and safety inside ourselves. Because if you can feel safe inside yourself, no matter what's going on outside, then you're an anchor for life itself and you're an anchor for everyone around you. You know, there's this one person that is calm. So I think that's a real key. I was listening to your latest album that came out that is with a couple of musicians, I believe, and you might want to talk to us about that and how that came to be. Half of it is instrumental and the first half of it, the first four tracks, is aligned with your speaking. Mm-hmm. aligned with your teachings and there's I believe it was the first track where you talk about being numb as such a gift mm. that feeling numb can be such a gift and I would love for you to talk about that because last year I was in Costa Rica for a week with some different people and we were in ceremony and it was interesting because that word numb came up for me And it felt like that whole week was about me feeling again and that I'd created such so much protection around my heart over the last 40 years or so. And when I was listening to you talking about that, being in a place of numbness is just a beautiful gift. Can you explain that to the listeners? Because I feel like there might be a lot of people out there Mm -hmm. that that might share that feeling of being. Yeah. See, one of those things that people think numbness is a lack of feeling. And actually, it is a feeling, you know. So if you feel that at any point, then that's something to listen to again, because it's a shadow pattern. And a shadow has potentially a gift. Every shadow potentially has a gift hiding inside it. So numbness is a very common human state. It's an ancestral memory that has gathered inside us. It's a freezing of the, literally the tissues around the heart itself, around our chest. And it's a learned reflex that it may have come through lots of different reasons. You know, it may have been things that happened and triggered in our childhood. But it goes back further than that because it's hidden in our DNA. It's this fear. Fear is numb. You know, numbness is fear. So when you go into that numbness with yourself and you treat yourself, you see what numbness needs is it needs gentleness. You know, the thing with it is you can't kind of force yourself out of it. I don't know if you've had that experience, but you have to soften yourself into it and through it. And so that begins by listening. Well, where does it come from? How does it make me feel? You know, and it's simple. It's just putting your hand on your heart, one hand on your heart, one hand on your belly, and just breathing into the numbness and accepting that this is a very, very human trait. There's nothing wrong with it. And that if you give it your attention, you know, it's like a wounded child, you know, because that's what we are, we're wounded children. So if you can communicate with the wounded child inside you, then the way you would do that if you were confronted with a wounded child is you'd be incredibly gentle. 
and really quiet and really patient and really calm and reassuring. And that's how we need to be with ourselves because it's in the cells of the body, these feelings. So if you can touch your body in that way, with that feeling repeatedly over a period of time, then that numbness will begin to soften and your heart will begin to open again. So in that sense, the numbness is a universal state and you might think that it's just you, but actually it's most human beings. And what will happen is, you know, we'll, we'll have openings of our heart and then something will come along that will cause it to close again. And so we then have to learn again to parent ourselves and go back into that numbness. And the worst thing we can do really is in when we're feeling numb or when we're feeling reactive is to kind of to carry on engaging with someone, you know, in a way that where we're, you know, so if you're in an argument or if you're, you find yourself defending yourself or you feel under threat, even in a subtle emotional way, the worst thing you can do is try and resolve it externally. Because once you have that numbness and it's come in and there's this clench over the heart, you really, you have to deal with it yourself. I mean, it, there may be people who can help you if they're very, very supportive, they can, you know, they can help you through touch and calm and quietness and these, you know, the sense of love and being loved. But ultimately we have to do with ourselves. So if we learn to parent ourselves, then it's about bringing our heart back to life. So that's what we're really learning to do. We're learning to bring our hearts back to life. And the better we get at doing that, the quicker the turnaround, the more we kind of are aware of it, we're like, oh God, the numbness is back. And it was just triggered by something someone did or said. And you say, right, okay, I'm offline right now. So I'm not going to be of any use in this conversation. So I'm just going to take myself away and I'm just going to look after myself for, you know, whether it's an hour or a day or whatever you need. Or you go out to nature or you go for a swim or surf or you do whatever it is that helps you reconnect back to you. And then you heal your heart. And this is the work. This is the work of being alive, right? is bringing ourselves back to life, resurrecting our heart. You know, that was this whole symbolism of the resurrection. It's like we have to do that over and over and over again inside ourselves. And you, get, you can get good at it. You know, you can get good so your turnaround is fast. So that, yeah, it, hit, it still triggers that pattern, but then you remember, your body remembers, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, 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 I know the state. I, can, I, I have to be compassionate towards myself. I have to be soft. And then it comes back and that softness just opens up the heart again every time. So that's the work. That's what I'm involved in. That's my reminder to myself and everyone I'm, you know, in all my teachings. That's the kind of core of it, really. Thanks for explaining that, mate. I've got a question for you. And I've asked this recently from a couple of my guests is why does it seem that people that are in positions of authority, in the traditional structures such as government or the health officials, especially through this last six or eight months, seem to be operating out of a different playbook than most people, I would say. It seems to be that there's either a hidden agenda or there's things that we're not privy to. There seems to be a lot of hypocrisy. Maybe this has always been, but it seems to be coming to light and it seems to be that the lies are becoming what my perception is, more exaggerated. It's like if you do tell a lie and you keep telling it for lies, it's hard to remember what you've said. And it feels like that with this pandemic over the last six or eight months through my lens of perception and many others. 
So the question I have is why are people like yourself and other, I guess, leaders of human behavior and spirituality not permeated into those traditional structures yet or were? Talk to me about the history of this and leadership. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a big question, that, because you have to sort of go back to the sort of bones of our modern civilization. And by the way, there's a really good book for anyone who's listening to this, particularly if you're Australian. I don't know if you've read it, Sand Talk. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. It's by an Aboriginal guy, and he looks at the Western culture through the lens of the Aboriginal culture. It's really interesting. He's a very kind of intelligent man, and it's a wonderful view of the system that we've created, the modern civilization, through that indigenous lens. I really recommend it. It's nice to pitch it for him. Sand talk. And what I have seen over and over again is that, you know, we we built this civilization with us, modern cities, and it's grown over thousands of years. And it has a certain sort of structure, underlying structure and matrix to it that has been very successful in terms of the propagation of, you know, human beings and us taking care of, you know, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of conflicts and so it's not in any way perfect, but there's been a certain success on the outside in the sense that as a species, we've grown and propagated ourselves very successfully, right? And we've kept ourselves alive and we've really managed the external well. And we haven't really attended to the internal. It's never been part of the structure. You know, there's been things like add-ons in a way, like our culture and art and music. And of course, that's all part of the human spirit. But we've lost something from our, you know, indigenous roots. We've so clearly gone awry. So we have to kind of reclaim something now in a way. And I think this is what this time is about. And, you know, like any system, if you want to understand systems theory really well, and there are experts in this, you know, who've explored how all systems work from weather systems to economic systems to the bio system to the immune immune system. You know, all systems work in similar ways in the cosmos. And what happens is if a system over proliferates itself, it then has a kind of feedback mechanism that is part of life that then culls itself. So in other words, in order not to destroy itself, it then starts to it kind of gets to that point of no return. It says, right, now we're going to start cutting back and cutting back and, you know, killing things off, parts of ourselves, so that we can renew something at the core. And the potential is that in that process of decline, I guess, looks like decline, the system can give birth to itself at another level. And this happens in biology. It happens in genetics. It happens through our species, through sociology, and what we know we've come on this long journey and the, and so is the whole cosmos. And we see this, you know, in like black holes and we see it everywhere. Like, like things give birth to themselves again and then something completely fresh and new comes along. You can see it in nature all the time. The dragonfly is a great symbol of it for me in Gene Keys and the teachings. I have dragonflies on the front of all my books because the dragonfly is this great, you know, like a butterfly, it gives birth to itself from inside itself. But the underwater creature that lives for two or three years has no connection 
really to the flying iridescent kind of creature that lives in the air. And so it's like, how do you, you could never have even guessed it was going to look like that or be that, you know? So in a way I'm saying that because that's what's happening to us now. And when we look, yes, when we look at the world that we've created, which is based on a patriarchal left brain mindset, it's in the throes of decline. And when something declines, aspects of it cling, you know, like the dragonfly, it kind of comes up into the air out of its water environment. And it's never been in the air before. And it's clinging to this stalk of grass and it clings for dear life. It's like, going, I don't know what to do. And the sun starts to work on it. And then this mutation takes place inside. And I don't know whether it's afraid at any level, but it must be thinking what the hell is going on at some level in its being. But then there's also a memory, I think, in it that's like, this is okay. You know, my ancestors have done this forever, you know, so it's okay. I can trust it. And then this creature emerges, but it splits open the old shell of the old. And so what we're seeing in our governments, in our, we're seeing the throes, the death throes, you know, so in a way it's desperation that we're seeing. It's clinging to the wreckage, you know, it's this, so we, so what we see is we see leaders emerge who are the kind of, final throws of the patriarchal model. So, you know, it throws up its kind of strongest patriarchal symbols, you know, the dumbest leaders, the kind of, the real sort of dense sort of energies that are kind of clinging to the wreckage as it's dissolving. And of course, it's all built, and even like our materialistic paradigm, which is the paradigm that most people in Western societies or most governments are operating out of, most of them, there's no kind of inherent belief in, a, in an afterlife or a soul or any of those things. It's just that there's no behavior that kind of moves through the system like that. It's just the fear of death. You know, that is the only, like, that is the worst thing. We've got to keep ourselves alive as long as possible, as many as, of us as possible. and if we were to fully embrace the fear of death and see that it's just a portal and move through like that portal, then we wouldn't behave in this way. <laughs> you know, it's like, again, if you look at the indigenous people, they don't have that fear of death. You know, they see it, they know it's an initiation. It's in their everyday living. You know, it's, it's in the cells, it's in how they're born, it's in how they're brought up. It's in, you know, and I'm not idealizing indigenous societies, but there are parts of us that know. So it's quite tempting at times of decline, steep decline, like we're experiencing now. It's quite tempting to focus your attention on the people that are clinging to the wreckage, you know. But the ship is going down. You know, the system has over-proliferated. The planet is in danger of destroying itself. But that's how it seems. But actually... From a deeper level, I think when we look back, you know, 100 years from now, maybe 200 years from now, we'll realize that the planet was never actually in danger of destroying itself. It just looked like that. It actually, at some deep level, the planet knows exactly what it's doing, even through us. It has to give birth to something new. And humans kind of, so we are one of those mutations as well. You know, we have to mutate so that we've mutated before. You know, we went from being 
one creature to being another creature, completely different, with different biology, with everything different, you know, and it happens very, very quickly. It always happens quickly. You know, the big changes happen fast. And that's, we know that through systems theory, through biology, through evolutionary biology, things happen fast. You know, the biggest changes always come because of something, because of a crisis. And nature needs crises in order to evolve. So look at it from as wide a perspective as you possibly can, and you'll find that you can settle a bit more. Whereas if you're looking at the tiny details, like this guy who's just insane, you know, behaving in this way, try, and it is, it's understandable because the decisions that leaders are making are affecting many people, and particularly the poorest people and the underdeveloped people that are the ones that are the worst affected by their decisions. So we need to do is whatever we can to kind of bring it to light. I, you know, I'm a revolutionary in my heart. So, but at the same time, if I'm only a revolutionary and I don't have that bigger picture, then I'm very invested in my behavior. And if I have that bigger picture, I can be a revolutionary and I can also have a sense of this is all going to turn out fine, actually, because this has happened before and this always happens because it's the death of a whole way of being. You know, it's the fear of death. It's not just the fear of individuals dying. It's the fear of our species dying. It's the fear of the Gaia dying. But death always feels like this. You know, there's always feelings of chaos. There's always deep clinging to the old way. And so that's what we see. And I think if you can get outside the kind of machinery of it and the drama of it and the stories, which are, you know, fascinating and should be listened to but if you can get into that bigger picture then you don't need to feel that level of concern and fear you know you can be concerned but your concern isn't coming from reaction and fear it's coming from love it's coming from the genuine need to be of service to people who are suffering because that's like you know we're all going to have to be more involved in that. You know, I, I think in what's coming for us, you know, we talk about the future. You know, someone's just fired a starting gun, really. Nothing's really begun yet. You know, I mean, it's begun, but we haven't seen what's going to hit next. The world economy is, for us, is going to go through a huge transition, a huge meltdown. And it's going to happen in layers. You know, these things always happen in layers, but over several generations, you know, possibly it's going to be very quick in terms of evolutionary timing. So, yeah, we're moving into very, very uncharted waters for us, but our bodies know this, like the dragonfly. It knows this. This has happened before, far, far back in our history. And so there's a safety somewhere inside us that this is okay. <laughs> so I don't know whether that helps people <laughs> it definitely does and i love the big perceptions that you're talking about here so would you say this is cyclical what's happening here or you talk about the epochs from a really expanded view talk to us about that well there's a concept called deep time right and if you've taken a hallucinogen for example ever in your life i've taken a few in my time but it's not been my main path i have yeah so and I'm not suggesting that you need to either, because if you sit 
for long periods in nature, or you really listen to and attend to your environment, or if you're really working in your heart, you already know this because you have the same view because it comes from deep inside our, our soul. And deep time is where we can realize that, you know, we're living in this tiny little kind of pocket of time. But if we expand out and we look at like vast spans of time, even to the extent where we allow our mind to open to eternity, eternal time, you know, deep time is a bit easier than eternal time because there is no time in eternal time. The time is gone, right? I've experienced eternal time, which doesn't exist. It's, it's infinite, but it's nothing at the same time. And it's, it's a paradox. It's a paradox and our brain can't really handle it. But so deep time is like takes us to the deepest paradigm that our mind can grasp, right? So it's, it's not quite right because it's eternal, but it helps us get there. And it lends some really valuable insights. And so what you find is that ancient civilizations were really good at mapping deep time. You know, like the Mayans mapped deep time. The people that wrote the Indian Vedas mapped deep time through what they call the Yugas, these huge epochs of time that were measured in, you know, hundreds of thousands of years and then subdivided in kind of algorithmic ways that they figured out because they were looking deeply at the patterns in nature. The Chinese also did it through the I Ching. And there are many ways, there have always been many ways of measuring deep time and looking at epochs, you know, the movement and the transition and the shifting of epochs, whole epochs. An epoch is something that's, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And we look at it now through astrologers have always looked at it through this procession of the equinoxes, these ages, you know, through the Aquarian age. And this, that's another way of looking at deep time. And so it's really valuable to do that. And again, indigenous people have that sense of deep time, like the people in Europe, who put these stone circles and things all over the world. They put these stone circles. Yeah, I think you even have them in Australia. They put them there to mark deep time because when you put in a bunch of stones in the ground that are really heavy <laughs> or a building that, like a pyramid, that building is not going to move for you know, thousands and thousands of years or those stones are going to stay for generation after generation after generation. So they're markers for deep time. And they allow the people who are moving in and out of those places, being born, dying, being born, dying, their ancestors, to kind of have a sense of the length of continuity of time and consciousness. And that gives you a sense of, I don't know, this, you know, it gives you a different look at your own life. You realize that you've got a tiny little script in this deep time passage in the big story. And it helps you to feel connected to where you've come from, but also where you're going. And I guess the other thing I should mention here is that, that many, you know, the deeper you go in your own evolutionary journey, the more you begin to realize, I've been here before, you know, like when you're looking from deep time, you realize I've been here so many times, like, you know, and if you travel around the world, you're like, I've been here. I know this place. I even know this person. I know, yeah, and you begin to like get the vestiges of recognition at so many levels. But there's this beauty of when we kind of come back into these forms, there's this kind of veil that comes over us. Because unless the mind is functioning and the heart is functioning at its highest potential, what I call the city level, then we can't remember all that. It's too much for us to process. So we have to kind of 
come towards it gradually. So it's like we're putting together a jigsaw puzzle as we're spiritually evolving. We're going, well, I, yeah, I sort of remember that. I don't remember that. I remember you. I'm not sure about this. <laughs> and you're putting together this puzzle inside yourself and your karma, the, the things that are coming to you are kind of reminding you, you know, they're like little triggers that are sending off reminders inside you. And maybe you, you go on different spiritual paths and journeys and with different people and it all triggers this memory. And so you realize that you've been here before in many, many different forms. And there's a continuity. There seems to be a continuity to that game. And so, you know, triggering this memory is a really important thing to do, allowing your mind to look at that and go back and reclaim some of the things, you know, from your past. And by the way, you know, you probably know this, there's a huge actually amount of evidence of like being accumulated by certain people and writers about you know kids that have been born with specific memories of places and people and their names and the details of their lives and then they've taken those kids to those places and they've verified it and that you know so there's loads of like evidence like that because there are people now gathering that kind of evidence so i'm saying that you know this notion of rebirth and reincarnation through deep time is more commonly held through the world's religions than we actually are aware of you know, there's clues in the teachings of Christ. There's, you know, there's things that people have said that we don't realize that, you know, it's not a new thing. And if you can remember things from the past like that, beyond your lifetime, then here's a really interesting thing. It's like memory doesn't just work backwards. Memory works forwards as well. Because in deep time, you're like, you're not just restricted to the past and now. Deep time is way beyond you as well. It's the future. So you realize, you know, that you're part of this chain and you can begin to remember where you're going as well as where you've come from. And the more you know where you've come from, the more you begin to kind of remember through your intuition where you're going. And so this really changes your view of life <laughs> because A, you're no longer needing to be afraid of death because you know that there's this beautiful continuity. You're in this theater. You're going to be in and out of forms. Sometimes you're a woman. Sometimes you're a man. Sometimes, you know, you're mixed gender. Sometimes you're, you know, you're in one culture. Sometimes you're rich. Sometimes you're poor. Sometimes, you're, you know, you're all these, you know, you're a Muslim. You're, a, <laughs> you're all these different things. We're all of them. They're all inside us. We've been here for millennia, you know, and just in this game, just in this universe. Because deep time is not even restricted to this universe, right? This is just one universe in one epoch of the even greater time. Yeah, so we are eternal voyagers in these forms. And it never ends. <laughs> you know, that's what we have to get. It never ends. Like even the, we inherited like through some of the Buddhist teachings, like this notion that it's going to end in Nirvana and then it's all over. It doesn't. It never ends. How can it end? Like, yeah, there are kind of points of plateaus where you reach to a deep vista, but then you're in the next layer, you know? It's like you move to another sphere, another evolutionary journey, and you're still in deeper and deeper and deeper segments of this time. And so looking at life through that kind of a lens, really then you bring it back to like, here we are now in the pandemic, <laughs> and you realize, wow, I don't need to be afraid of any of this. This is just one of those turning points. And because in the cosmos, everything is entangled and everything is connected, 
at every level conceivable, because it's just one thing, a shift in consciousness for one species is a shift in consciousness for all life. All life, from ants to black holes. Everything is connected. So everything is moving through a shift. So we're all in this together. That's why, you know, we're facing species extinction. We're facing all these things. But actually, we don't know what lies on the other side of the rebirth. You know, we don't know what forms will emerge. We don't fully know, unless your memory is functioning well, your future memory, you don't fully know what we're going to become. You know, we're going to become something really extraordinary. We're going to come from being individualized to being a collective, you know, to function as a collective. You know, humanity is a collective. We're sort of, we've been trialing that out, you know. We've tried it out through, like, United Nations and things like this and trying it through the internet, like we're all connected. But that's on the outside. And actually, it's all just mapping what's already occurred in deep time on the inside. You know, this has already been realized. We're just moving through the motions. You know, we're in this form, moving through the motions towards our collective future. And, you know, for me, I don't know, I'm, I'm one of these weird people who had it in me from a young age. And I've always held this certainty in the cells of my body of, wow, we have a glorious future ahead of us. But we have a serious initiation that we're looking down the funnel of. <laughs> And yeah, it's scary. It is scary. I, I mean, clapping, but I, I'm sorry. But. I know, but it is, you know, it's like what is coming for us is terrifying, you know, to the form that believes this is it. This is my little life, my little patch of land, my little patch of body. This is it. You know, if you believe that, you are, excuse me, fucked. <laughs> right? So you've got to open, expand your view of the cosmos and of yourself, and of what we are, and why we're here. And then you will move through this transition in a really smooth way. It won't be easy for any of us. There's going to be huge suffering. There already is suffering on this planet at every level. You know, half the world still don't have a cell phone. You know, over half the world don't have a toilet. I mean, we forget these things. Like, it's already huge suffering here. So it's just going to be, we're going to become more and more aware of it, especially the privileged West, you know, what we call the West or the developed countries. Yeah, we're going to be like really shown the nature of what we have built. And then we're going to have an opportunity to build something completely new. And it's going to happen in spite of us. <laughs> That's the beauty. It's like whatever we try and do, it's going to happen. And we should. I mean, I don't use shoulds, but we should do our best to help those who are suffering. And we should kind of challenge those forces of injustice, you know, as the ship goes down. We have to carry on being good people, you know, being like authentic, who, authentically who we are. We have to carry on, even though the ship's going down. It's like those guys on the Titanic, you know, they carried on playing, even though the ship's going down. Like, you've got to do what's in your nature, even though the ship's going down. So mm. that was a long transmission, but <laughs> there you are. That was beautiful. Thank you, Richard. I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. I'll see you there. The information 
Views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.